welcome to Hanchuk Targets History. I'm your host, Tim Hanchuk. Thanks for joining me this episode. You know, I've been teaching high school history for way too many years, and I love talking about this stuff. So let me share with you some interesting, unique, and little-known historical events. I know you'll be entertained, and if you're not careful, you just might learn something too. So, let's lock and load and take a shot at that target of history and see what we can hit. Well, let's take a walk down range and see what the target shows us. Hey, looks like a hit in the Cold War again. So back we go with a quick story about spying on the Soviets. You know, if you live during the time of the Cold War, there always seemed to be that threat that things would heat up and it would turn into a hot war. It seemed inevitable that someday the U.S. and the Soviets would start lobbing nukes at each other and we'd have World War III as evidenced in classic movies throughout the era, such as On the Beach, Failsafe, Dr. Strangelove, and The Day After. And of course, how could we forget the various incidents, crises, and proxy wars that happened as well? Yeah, it certainly was a scary time, but as we all know, it turned out alright. And today, we're going to be talking about a guy who helped keep the Cold War cold. One of America's most valuable spies. His various code names included Top Hat, Bourbon, and Rome, but his real name was Dmitry Fyodorovich Polyakov. Polyakov was born in Ukraine SSR on July 6, 1921, and was the son of a bookkeeper. He graduated from the Sumy Artillery School in 1941, and surprise, served as an artillery officer in World War II. During the war, he was decorated for bravery. After the war ended, Polyakov entered the Frunze Military Academy, think like the Soviet version of West Point, to further his studies, and then he completed GRU training courses. After this, he joined the GRU, which was Soviet military intelligence. By this point in his life, he was also married and would have three sons. At this early point in the Cold War, the GRU had agents all over the world, trying to learn everything they could about American life priorities, and military assets. Of course, the U.S. was doing the same thing with the USSR, but had a harder time since the Soviets were so paranoid about secrecy. Polyakov's first assignment was with the Soviet delegation to the Military Staff Committee of the United Nations in New York City from 1951 to 1956. His job was to direct Soviet spies who were working without diplomatic cover. In the parlance of the day, these types of spies were known as illegals because they, not being attached to their embassy, were operating without diplomatic immunity. After a successful first assignment, Polyakov returned to the Soviet Union for a time before being posted to New York again between 1959 and 1961. And here's where things change. Toward the end of his tour, in 1961, he made contact with FBI counterintelligence agents in Manhattan and offered up his services as an informant. Translation, he was offering to become a double agent and spy for the Americans. Now why in the world would a promising young Soviet GRU agent, whose career was clearly on the rise, choose to betray his country? That's a good question, and it's one Polyakov never answered to his American handlers so I'm afraid all we have is conjecture. FBI and CIA agents who worked with him suggest he became increasingly disgusted 
with what he saw as duplicity and corruption developing within the Communist Party elite. He considered himself a true Russian patriot and became more and more disillusioned with the Soviet system as time went on. However, Viktor Chakashin suggests an additional factor that may have motivated him. Chakashin was actually a KGB agent who served as the case officer for the American spies Aldrich Ames and Robert Hansen. More about those two later. Chakashin points out that during Polyakov's second tour in New York, his eldest son became seriously ill. Polyakov asked for permission to take him to a New York hospital so he could get appropriate medical care, but the Soviet leadership denied this request, forcing him to use the embassy medical staff. His son died as a result of this, and just a few weeks later is when he first approached the FBI. So whatever his motivation, one thing we can say for certain is that he wasn't doing it out of greed. He never accepted more than $3,000 a year, and most of that didn't even come in the form of cash. He preferred to be paid in things related to his hobbies. Black & Decker power tools for weekend carpentry projects, fishing gear, or perhaps a fine shotgun to add to his growing collection. The U.S. agents were naturally suspicious. I mean, come on, a GRU officer? That was too good to be true. It must be some kind of Soviet trick. But as time passed and Polyakov delivered more and more valuable pieces of intelligence, the Americans realized what a prize they had. Shortly after signing on with the U.S., Polyakov was posted back to Moscow. This gave him access into GRU penetrations of Western intelligence, and he was able to find the identity of several Soviet moles. One was Jack Dunlap, a U.S. Army sergeant who was working as a courier for the National Security Agency. He killed himself in 1963 rather than face arrest. Another was Frank Bossard, who was a guided missile researcher in the British Ministry of Aviation. This information led to Bossard's arrest by MI5 in 1965. Between 1965 and 1969, Polyakov ran the GRU's key listening post in Rangoon, Burma. From here, he was able to give the CIA everything the Soviets had been collecting about the Vietnamese, much of it relating to the Vietnamese War. He also provided intel on the Chinese armed forces that had been gathered at this location. From Rangoon, he went back to Moscow to head up the GRU's China section. In this position, he was able to photograph numerous documents for the CIA, tracing the bitter split that was occurring between the Soviets and China. And it was these documents that helped a CIA specialist in Chinese-Soviet relations make a confident analysis that the split between the two countries would persist. The position paper the CIA agent wrote about this was used by Henry Kissinger and played a crucial role in President Richard Nixon's decision to exploit that split and open diplomatic relations with China in 1972. Now before we go on, let's take a quick look at Polyakov's family life. As I said, he was married, and the funny thing about him, as compared to other Soviet officers the CIA was in contact with, was that he was completely faithful to his wife. He smoked and drank a little bit, but never to excess, and it was clear that he wanted the two sons he had left to be well-educated and placed in professional jobs someday. 
this wish would be assured by his continued rise in the GPU. So hey, since he was helping the CIA, they decided to help him with his career. They'd provide him with minor secrets from time to time, and even provided two Americans who he presented to Moscow as spies he had recruited. Of course, these two Americans were double agents working for the CIA. Help like this would pay off. Polyakov was posted to New Delhi, India from 1973 to 1976 as Soviet military attaché. During this posting, he was promoted to the rank of Major General in 1974. A Soviet Major General would be equivalent to an American One Star or Brigadier General, and this promotion would pay huge dividends. He now had access to intelligence data beyond his immediate mission. One could say he became a veritable treasure trove of important Soviet documents. From 1979 to 1980, Polyakov was again Soviet military attaché in New Delhi and provided an extensive list of military technologies the Soviets wanted their spies to obtain from the West. This list showed the U.S. that there were over 5,000 separate Soviet programs trying to use Western technology to build up Soviet military capabilities. This intel was used by Assistant Secretary of Defense Richard Pearl early in the Reagan presidency to convince President Ronald Reagan to make tighter controls on Western sales of military technology. All told, it's said that Polyakov provided the U.S. with Soviet documents that filled 25 file cabinet drawers. Some other gems he provided? Over 100 issues of the classified version of the monthly strategy document, Military Thought, that was given to the Soviet general staff. It contained very realistic assessments from Soviet military strategists and gave the U.S. a truly amazing insight into Soviet military strategy and doctrine. This information was crucial in preventing U.S. miscalculations that could have provoked war. It also showed the U.S. that, like themselves, the Soviets also believed a nuclear war was unwinnable. Polyakov also gave the U.S. complete technical data on the latest Soviet anti-tank missiles. And while the U.S. and Soviets never squared off directly, the data about these weapons was invaluable to the U.S. when Iraq used them in the Gulf War in 91. So for over 25 years, Polyakov spied for the U.S., his life in mortal danger the entire time. Once a U.S. agent asked him what would happen if he were caught, his simple reply in Russian, Bratskaya Mogila. That means a mass or common grave. And yeah, I know, my Russian's lousy. But knowing this, you better believe he was beyond careful when practicing his spycraft. When Polyakov would photograph documents to send to the Americans, he'd use a highly specialized film. To develop it, one needed to use a special chemical that only he and his handlers knew. If the film was processed in the usual fashion, it would come out blank. He'd use hollowed-out rocks to make dead drops in fields and woods. And he'd set up those dead drops, or call for meetings, by using a special miniature transmitter the Americans had given him. He'd hide it in his pocket and ride the Moscow trolley. As the trolley went past the U.S. Embassy, he'd activate a two-second burst transmission that would be picked up by a receiver in the embassy. Pretty much impossible 
for Soviet technology to pick up on. While out in the field, Polyakov would often meet U.S. agents while he was out fishing. Remember, the U.S. gave him a bunch of fishing gear, and his rods had concealed compartments to hold information. Or he'd simply talk to the agent directly. Within the agent's tackle box would be a hidden recorder. To any onlookers, it would appear that these were just two guys out fishing and talking to pass the time. In June of 1980, Polyakov was ordered to leave New Delhi and return to Moscow. This seemed kind of sudden, and his CIA handlers feared the worst. From this point, the U.S. lost contact with him, but word on the street was that he was retired from the GRU. Again, that made the Americans wonder. Retired as in spending time at home tinkering around his workshop, or retired as in permanently with a bullet through the head. In January of 1990, Pravda, the state-controlled Soviet newspaper, ran a story saying that General Polyakov had been executed two years earlier, on March 15, 1988, for espionage. From the facts to come out later, it seems the KGB arrested him in 1986, and he no doubt spent the time between arrest and execution being questioned, debriefed, and tortured silly. That begs the question, how was Polyakov caught? It sure wasn't through any carelessness on his part, and again, it wasn't until some time later that the information was pieced together. In 1994, the U.S. arrested CIA agent Aldrich Ames for spying against America. It turned out that he had been feeding the KGB information for quite some time and betrayed a number of Soviet and Eastern Bloc citizens who had been spying for the CIA. Polyakov was one of them, and certainly the most important. On top of this, 2001 saw the arrest of FBI agent Robert Hansen, also for spying against America. It turns out that he, too, gave information that betrayed Polyakov. So, we have this man, who spied against his own country, but at the same time considered himself a true Russian. So what was he? A patriot? A traitor? I'm sure the U.S. and the Soviets would label him differently. But call him what you will, one thing is for certain. The invaluable intelligence that he provided the Americans not only helped them to win the Cold War, it no doubt also kept the Cold War from heating up. And yeah, I know there were plenty of spies, agents, and other people operating behind the scenes who also helped keep the Cold War cold, but talking about them, well, that would be another story. And there you have it, kind listeners. Thank you for tuning in. You know, if you like this episode, please tell your friends about it. And check out some of the other ones. You might like those too. And I very much look forward to talking with you again next week.